Welcome to the Invincible Innovation Show, the podcast for changemakers. Each week, I talk to the most fascinating entrepreneurs and innovation leaders about innovation, strategy, and design. Hey, everyone. Today, we have a talk about creating companies where people thrive. Welcome to Invincible Innovation Live Show. I'm so glad that you're here. I'm Adina Zolcario, Product Innovation and Value Creation Expert, and I'll be your host And today I have a very special guest. Hi, Heather. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so happy that you're here. Heather Politka is the CEO and advisor at Heather T Solution. Yeah. And, and I'm sure it's going to be like a really interesting talk. We're live on LinkedIn, YouTube and Facebook, and you're so invited to ask this uh, question and join the, the discussion. So now we can start. So I know that you're working with so many companies and I know that you see some kind of a gap consistently within companies. So tell me more about that. Yeah, it, what's interesting is the, the gap is very consistent and uh, it was the gap that existed pre-pandemic, but we're just we're seeing people kind of lower their tolerance level for the gap. And the gap that I see is the gap between who a company says they are and in some cases they believe they are or, The leaders believe they are excuse me and the actual lived experience that employees have within the organization so it's kind of like if we were to buy a product and they say it does all these amazing wonderful things and then you get it home and it's like wah, wah. you know it doesn't maybe quite do what it says it does or it does it in a way but you know not in the way it was you kind of understood it to be And you know what's tough is you can take a product back to you know back to the store to return it. Um, I think that's what we're seeing with the great resignation or the great reshuffle or however we want to term it is employees saying, you know I, I want to get what I authentically signed up for because the relationship between employer and employee is just that. It's a relationship. And so when there's a gap between who we say we are, And how it's experienced that that almost occurs as though we're not being authentic in the relationship yeah I totally understand what you're saying it seems like companies invest lots of time in thinking about their brand and values and think that it will work really well for customers and for potential employees but it's so hard to really sustain it afterwards and and how do you go from these like big words and values to something which is daily? And that's one question. And the second one is, what do you think about this great resignation? So how do you think it's like turned into this really big trend? Yeah. Um, okay, so the the first thing, how does it become sort of alive and real? I, I think it's a really good point of seeing words on a website that are the values, but is that really the reality inside? And um, what's interesting about that is, That work gets done, but then it never the hard work because the easy work and I, I work in branding and that too the easy work um, is coming up with the brand. The easy work is saying this is what our mission our values are going to be. The hard work is putting it into practice as you pointed to. And if you think about it, we're seeing that continue to play out right now as companies spend much more money on attracting talent. Then they're spending on retaining talent. So again, doing the thing like 
the easy quick fix versus the hard work, which actually produces a sustainable solution and a sustainable business result. So one of the things that is most often missing in companies that I go into is once they've said these are the values, most companies, and I mean literally 95% of companies miss the work of defining those values in terms of behaviors. These are the behaviors we're going to reward. These are the behaviors that, eh, you know, might be acceptable, but these are the ones we're not going to tolerate. And that definition of the behaviors is really important because you can get one leader leading the value of innovation, like it's a competitive Lord of the Flies exercise, and another leader in that same organization leading, um, leading innovation with this idea of like, no, let's bring some customers to the table and take first perspectives and point of view and make this this collaborative where we, you know, full contact dialogue and, and the best ideas, but together we'll win. Those are both a route to innovation. I know that you and I would argue one is better than the other, but yeah. um, but if we don't define the behaviors, how do you hold the leaders to account uh, to account for leading innovation in the way that you want it to flourish within your organization? You can't. So that's that's like the trickle down effect of not defining those behaviors is then you can't hold people accountable to them. And then you end up with subcultures in different pockets of the organization. And then you have this inconsistent experience and that starts to really break down um, the overall experience for the company. So I would say that most often it's doing that definition work and then allowing room for all of us to grow and, and develop into the new definition, but holding us accountable if we do not. And that is what is missing. Um, yeah. I think that answered the first question. Yeah, <laughs> I have another, we'll go back to the great transformation okay. because I'm really trying to understand that. But I want to tell you that usually when we're talking about behaviors in business, we usually hear, you know, the very extreme use cases of misbehaving. We don't really, really hear much about how we should do things, more about how we shouldn't, right? Yes, and, yeah. And, That's and why it's I, so important. I, oh, sorry. Yeah, I, so exactly. I got so excited about that point because that's why when we define, when I work with companies to define behaviors, I actually put them into three buckets, not just two. One is these are the buckets we really want to advocate and reward and elevate and highlight. These are the behaviors that will be tolerated, but they're not necessarily, they're acceptable, but they're not the things that we're going to exemplify and highlight. And then here's the ones that are not tolerated. And I think by starting to do that, then you have a room that someone might be showing up and leading innovation just fine, but you have room to help them grow and to say, this works, but this will work even better. This is what, you know, these, this is the leadership and the, the behaviors we want to exemplify. And I think all three buckets are important for that reason. Yeah, and would you say that different roles or different departments needs to emphasize different types of behaviors? If you have like five, you need more in innovation and maybe in sales different things and operations need different things, or they all need to comply to the same behavior? I think they all need to comply to the same behaviors. Now, the the outputs of that, like how you're going to innovate, you know, in your sales organization versus how you're going to innovate in operations or how you're going to innovate in the marketing department, the the output will be very different. 
But when we think about behaviors, we're thinking like, okay, let's say we define innovation as um, there's no such thing as a bad idea, just ideas that need to be explored until they're exhausted. I just made that one up. <laughs> well, you would want that same behavior if you're in marketing as if you were in sales that, and you define there's a time and place when we're brainstorming, there's no bad ideas, just ideas that have to be exhausted and they get explored and then they get set set aside, but not because they're bad, because but because they just don't happen to work for whatever it is we're trying to solve for. So I think the behaviors are the same across the organization. I think that similarity of behavior is really important. Again, what we reward and what we're not going to tolerate. I see. And if we're talking about this gap that was like years before and now it's like accelerated. So tell me what has changed during these two years of the pandemic? How do you see that? Well, unfortunately, I think the pandemic high, lowered the water level, so to speak, to show the gap. Um, I will say I have a lot of compassion for our talent acquisition and recruiting functions. Pre-pandemic, uh, they were able to cover for a lot of the gap. Um, so if a leader was toxic and had a lot of turnover, talent acquisition could just keep putting people into the chairs and no one was sort of the wiser, even though recruiting knew that was a toxic leader uh, with turnover, they, the market was such that they could cover for it. Well, I think the pandemic, you know, companies had to make a lot of choices and not even just the decisions they made, but how they made them and how they implemented those decisions told people a lot about who they really are, what they really value. Um, there, are there are companies that had to do massive layoffs, but they did it in a really compassionate way. And then there are companies that handled it not so well. And I think the pandemic lowered the water level such that people are like, yeah, I, you know, I thought this before, but now I really see it. I really see when push comes to shove, how you're going to be as a company and how you're going to show up. And I'm not interested. And unfortunately, now the talent acquisition and recruiting functions, they can't compensate for that. They can't compensate for cultures that have been unhealthy for a while. They can't compensate for leaders that um, have led in really toxic and unhealthy ways. TA and, and recruiting can't compensate because the water level has really revealed how big those gaps are. Yeah, you know, like in Israel, we have a huge problem of, of we don't have enough talent for all the startups and, and high tech in Israel. Yeah. And it's, it's a big fight over talent. Really, yeah. you see so many companies investing tons of money in order to advertise for employees and, and about their brand. And what is different, I think, that in Israel, it's such a small company and a small, it's not a small, a small country, and people know each other. So even if they don't go to Glassdoor or something like that, I will know someone within the company in a minute. So I know somebody who knows someone who works there. Yes. And, and it's so hard to cover that over like things that they are doing right. or managers they're, they're taking in. So sometimes there are like great managers for their results, but not for their employees. So maybe their managers really love what they're doing, but their employees don't really like them. And, and that's a problem because he's measured by what he's doing and not what the employees are saying about it in many cases. 
So I think that in, in, in the US, it's, especially in enterprise, it's very, um, people take into consideration what your peers are saying, people that are your employees, people above you. Is it like, I don't no? think so, not so much. So no? I, I love the example that you talked about because I think that's another thing that's really showing up now is that companies have valued managers for the work and the output um, but not whether they're really good people leaders. And what I, uh, some examples is it's very common for the best salesperson to get promoted to sales manager or the person who's been in customer service the longest to get promoted to sales manager. And in the industries that are really hurting, and you mentioned one right now, tech, uh, technology, finance, healthcare, they have valued technical skills over people leadership skills. And so we've, we are seeing it so prevalent here in the US, even though we have 360 degree reviews. In a lot of companies, you don't do a 360 degree review unless a problem has been noted with the leader. And that means it's gotten bad enough. Yeah. <laughs> so what happens is they get, people get promoted into a manager role and only 30% of them get any training so only 30% of managers have any training, and most of that is not people leadership skills. Most of it is operational, how to onboard someone in the system, how to get them a new computer, how to do payroll, or it's technical. And now we are seeing in technology and in finance and in healthcare in particular, but I would say very prevalent, a lot of people saying, you know, my manager doesn't actually know how to lead people. And during the pandemic, that showed a great deal. And right now, people need a people-centric leader. They need an empathetic leader. They need someone who supports and empowers them, removes roadblocks, gets them the resources, not someone who's like standing over their shoulder, like see, making sure they're making the widgets. So we are seeing a huge gap uh, here in the U.S., and it sounds like globally, in terms of first line, second line, middle management um, uh, leadership skills. And that's actually part of why inside of my work, we developed a new manager development program uh, called Awesome People Leaders. And it is all micro learnings. It's all mobile enabled. And the idea is like 10 or 15 minutes, you watch a video, you get a, you get a download of a, a marketing collateral kind of piece on a topic. So you can absorb it very quickly apply it to your work, and then next week do your next 10 to 15 minute lesson. So it works the way our brains work. It works the way work works, but we're just trying to shore up this huge gap in people leadership skills because that the number one reason someone will leave a job is because of their manager. Yeah, and 70% yeah. of engagement is determined by the employee's relationship with their manager. So if you have managers who actually don't know how to lead people, they just know how to manage work. It, it's just, it's insufficient for the times that we're in. Yeah, you know, like it, it relates to, to what we just said that if you're measured only by your bottom line and sometimes managers take uh, credit for their employees work in that case. And, and if you're measuring only bottom line, nobody would really know um, what's really going on. And, and these employees are doing their best and right now it feels that they need more empathy from their managers. And it's been like very two hard years for everyone. And, and you had this 
the balance between going to work and staying at home and your family life and your hobbies and what you're doing is has changed tremendously. And now people are saying, okay, I have these like hours a day. I can commute like half of the time or not. I can like what I decide to do. And I think that it's more than that because the, the, the companies, most of them did not lose money. Most of them who knew how to manage. So if you're doing it without monitoring me here, here behind my back, behind my shoulder, so why should I come to work and, and have this like overload of, you know, going to work, commuting, everything all at once? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it is super interesting that when you think about during the pandemic, it became very clear of who creates value for the organization. It was the people who you know, kept working, whether it was on the front lines and they had to be in person or the people who very quickly overnight adapted to working from home and how many companies actually increased their profitability, increased their revenue is, is pretty crazy. Um, so yeah, I, and in fact, I used to make that trade off too. I'd be like, okay, it takes me this long to get ready and this long to drive. So if I go into work, I'll split the difference. I'll give half of it to the company and I'll take half of it for myself and my <laughs> and yeah, my life sense. and i do think um companies that are trying to mandate like now come into the office i think are facing a lot of resistance because people are saying give me a reason why and the reason that <clears throat> we need to it's for our culture is kind of bs and what i mean by that is again it's about a shortcut so a lot of companies, their culture, and by culture, we mean how we work, how we interact, how we make decisions. A lot of that was set up for in-person environments. And then overnight, companies had to go remote. Um, then to say that you have to come back in the office for our culture is laziness. And, and what I mean by that is it's sort of like if you had a desktop website and you go and you try to use it on your mobile phone, and all of a sudden the experience is kind of wonky, most companies would say, oh, then we need to design a responsive website, one that works whether you're on your phone or you're at a desktop. So why is the answer any different when it comes to our employees? If that's the answer for consumers trying to shop, why is the answer any different for employees? What really needs to be done is the work to then evolve the culture how we work, how we communicate, how we make decisions. So it can work both in person and remotely. And that's, again, it's sort of this doing the work so that you can have a culture that works in either way. And it still creates that sense of connection to the organization and the purpose, et cetera. I did recently have a company that reached out to me and I loved their approach because they were one, they're like, we had a really strong connected in-person culture before the pandemic. And yeah, we've worked remotely and we've actually been more productive and more, you know, more to the bottom line. But I love it because the CEO said, I will give up some of our profitability so that we can have that human connection. And wow. I love that heart and that sentiment. And also his approach was, how do we create the kind of environment or opportunities that make people want to come to the office? So it wasn't going to be a prescription of you need to be in three days a week, et cetera, et cetera. But he was really interested in how do we create a work environment that people want to come and be in person and that works for them. And so we started having the conversation about, okay, well, 
women have been unduly impacted during the pandemic as they took on distance learning and, oh my God, I love to cook and I was so tired of cooking. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you start having nine to three, you know, work meetings are between nine and three. So that enables daycare drop-off, senior care drop-off and pick up. And by the way, everyone loves that. So I love that exploration of one, let's adjust our culture so it can work hybrid, remote or in-person. Let's do that work. And then secondly, if we want people in the office, let's give them a compelling reason why. And productivity is not the answer, but neither is culture. But I do think human connection is a great reason. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You know, like um, it seems that people forgot what is the meaning of just meeting people and these small talks and just having coffee because it, it's like when you're online, I feel it myself because usually I was like two, three, four days a week. I was out of the office in my client's uh, offices. And I really love, you know, going to different uh, clients, just chatting with them, getting to know some of them are my friends already. And and now it's like all online. So it's like the, the default is online. It's, it's like online call. And once in a while, if we don't want to do something different, I would go and meet them. And for me, it's it's like, one of the reasons of doing things in general is to be with people. And, and there are so many things you cannot really transfer when you have this like part of your body and your own work and there's less chit chatting in the beginning. So it's really interesting where we go because people on one side want their freedom and they want to be trusted. I think it's related to trust. The fact that I, you can trust me. You don't, you don't need to see me in the office in order for me to work. Right. right? Yes. And, yes. And, well, and that makes sense. I love the sentiment of the CEO because <clears throat> one of the things that the U.S. can be in an unhealthy way, very productivity driven. Um, you know, there's, uh, we, there's the saying that, you know, in the U.S., unfortunately, you know, we live to work and other parts of the world, you know, work to live. And I love the work to live philosophy much more. And I think a lot of Americans discovered that also during the pandemic going, I actually don't want my life so busy. I actually don't want like, I don't want to be where I leave the house at seven in the morning and I'm not home until, you know, 10 o'clock at night because I'm working and then all these activities, et cetera. Um, so I love the sentiment of the leader I referenced earlier, who was willing to give up a little bit of productivity um, in the short term, because he sees the value in having this human connection, uh, not just for the individual employee, and I think mental health and well-being and having that connection, but also he sees the benefit for the company over the long term. If we create, you know, the stronger the sense of community, and no, it doesn't have to look just one way in the office, but let's not forget that that is a way and a really powerful way to create connection. So that is an unusual sentiment of to hear an executive being willing to openly say, I will trade some productivity for creating this connection. And I really, I really commended him for that. So what is preventing people from thriving in their workplace? What is the challenge here? Um, I, I still think that the number one thing that prevents people from thriving is their direct supervisor and not out of any ill intent. No one becomes a manager or a leader and says, 
I want to be the person people complain about when they go to happy hour. <laughs> no. no one signs up for that, but they don't know any better. They, they become a manager. They're not given any training or support. The company's expectations are around the productivity and producing widgets. Um, the company doesn't promote people into executive leadership roles and say, we're promoting them because they are an excellent people leader. In fact, you, that is unheard of in the U.S. to say someone is promoted because they're a great people leader, which is really ironic when you think about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, it is. Yeah. So they're stuck with, they're being expected to produce a lot of stuff. They're not given any training and support. So people create their own models for leadership. They're like, okay, I had this boss. I didn't like what they did, so I'm going to not do that. And I have this boss that I like, so I'm going to try to cherry pick a piece or two from that. But I'm not even sure exactly what they did or how they did it, but I'll do my best and I'll figure it out. So we have a lot of leaders just trying to figure it out. And unfortunately, the people who pay the price for that are the ones who report into them. And then they get promoted, they get promoted. And it's not till they're 10 years into their career in the U.S. and they're at a director level. And all of a sudden we're going to invest in leadership development and executive coaches and all of that. But think about all the people they led to get to a level where the company was willing to invest in them. And then a lot of the leadership development is undoing bad habits that were developed. And so um, I do think that's still the number one thing. And then number two thing is companies not doing the work and not holding people accountable for not leading through their values. One person, one leader that you keep around because they produce um, even though they don't do it in a way that represents who you are, that that will break your culture more than anything. And and I talk to a lot of executive recruiters and recruiters, and they say the top two questions that are being asked right now, one is culture, and the second is, do I have the flexibility to work in the way that works for me in my life? And so those are the top two things, and I challenge. I've said everyone I know, I go, if you're interviewing for a role, Ask them if they're spending as much, if not more, on retaining employees as they are on attracting them. Because that'll tell you a lot. Are they going for the, the quick fix or are they really investing for the future of the organization? Because companies that invest in retention, companies that invest in manager development, they are playing the long game. And that's the kind of place that you can go and build a career versus have it be a stop on the resume. Yeah. Don't you think that people skills in general, communicating well, understanding people is something that is like your lifelong mission, more or less, for some people. And it's hard to train people who are not interested in other people. If they're interested in the numbers, if they're interested in the results or their specific part of the role or technology that they're doing, um, it seems that it's really hard to teach that, no? Yeah, it can be. Um, and, you know, and yet, if you're going to, if you're really interested in the numbers and it's someday you want to lead other people in being interested in the numbers, or you really like the tech and someday you want to be helping others who really like the tech, that's people leadership. So if that's the path you want to go down, then I think it's behooven upon us to, even though it may not be comfortable, it may be outside our, our, our comfort zones, it's if we're going to lead people, those are the skills that we need to develop. That's why, you know, I really have appreciated that some organizations have created a path 
um, for technical people, I'll say I've seen this a lot in technology, where you can continue to advance in your technical career, but that doesn't mean that you're a people leader. Um, it means you advance as a thought leader in technology because who you are innately is an individual contributor, but you're gonna just contribute at an unprecedented level. And I think that's appropriate. I think that demonstrates a lot of emotional intelligence to know who I am as a person and what fuels me. And if it's not leading people, then I shouldn't, shouldn't do that. But unfortunately, that's not a broad adoption across a lot of companies. So in order to advance in your career, people feel like they have to take it on. But then secondly, I'll share a conversation I had with a chief technology officer. Because one of the things that we do in the Awesome People Leader Program is the first thing we start off with is brain science and how our brains work. Because if you're leading humans, you're leading everyone with brains. And how the threat response, that fight, flight, or freeze, um, is not a zone of the brain where we can do any innovation. It's not a zone of the brain for collaboration, for problem solving, and it's not a zone of the brain for productivity. So we talk about the three zones, you know, the, the fear zone, the productivity zone of the brain, and then the reward function of the brain and how that works and how as leaders, we've got to be triggering the reward response in the brain of our employees to help get those innovative ideas, that collaboration and the problem solving. So after the session with the chief technology officer, and he said, Heather, I've been in a lot of these leadership development sessions, but for the first time, someone explained the science behind recognition, the science behind positive reinforcing feedback. He goes, I just thought before they just wanted me to like thank someone for doing their job. And he goes, and I didn't understand why people needed that. So even with someone who is so highly technical, if we also explain the science behind it, you could hear how he could get behind the science. And all of a sudden he goes, you've transformed my leadership in terms of recognition and positive reinforcing feedback because I finally get the science. So I even think with those technical people, there's a way we can get in there. Yeah, I always work with technical people. I really enjoy working with them, but people skills are not the first thing that people would say about them, right? Yes. Um, so it's like trying to tackle um, to, to open a new way of thinking for, for some people. And, and it's, it demands their interest and motivation in to do so, yeah. um, which they don't always have, I guess. And you have lots of work. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all have our areas, right? We all have yeah. our areas to lead and um, to grow and to develop. And I wanna create a lot of space for those who maybe don't feel as comfortable in the people leadership because it might be easier to deal with numbers than deal with humans. In fact, it is easier to deal with numbers than deal with yeah. humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we all have room to grow and to develop and I, I wanna create some grace for that, but we have to give them the opportunity to develop those skills and, uh, and the resources and the training and the development. So what are the three ingredients that make up the circuit sauce of engagement? Ooh, secret sauce of engagement. Well, what's interesting is engagement's actually an outcome. And so we have a lot of companies like, oh, we need to work on engagement, but it's actually an outcome. And it's an outcome of the employee experience. And in the employee experience, it really is, we're gonna go back to where we started this conversation. It's who a company says they are and what they say they value and how that shows up into eight different areas of the employee experience. 
And not that those are the only eight, but they're the eight that lots of studies and science have shown are the most prevalent and, and, and important to employees. And when a company walks their talk in those eight areas, it's sort of like, oh, you did what you said you were going to do. You showed up the way you said you were going to show up. And so then I, as an employee, I have increased engagement. And so that's the outcome that gets developed. The, the problem is, is that um, engagement has been largely unmoved. Uh, I, I can speak to the U.S., largely unmoved for a couple of decades. <clears throat> and the only time, even though we know this, we've done all these studies, we know this, we know how engagement fuels the bottom line, um, but, but still has been unmoved. And so one of the, um, the only time we saw a movement engagement is in the first four months of the pandemic, interestingly enough. It's the only time we've seen a notable shift and increase in engagement. But it's not a surprise when you think about it. Companies were over-communicating. They were very quickly adapting and adjusting and doing the best they could. I think companies were being really human about, oh, we're trying to figure this stuff out. We don't know. We went overnight. overnight. They demonstrated they cared about employees. And so all of a sudden, you have this over-communication, you have this vulnerability in leadership, and you have this, um, we, we really care about you, and shocking, engagement goes up. And then we get a little fatigued, and by the September of 2020, engagement was back to pre-COVID levels, and they've largely remained there. And part of it is, again, it's not looking at, as a company, are we walking the talk in eight areas of the employee work experience? And that's why engagement remains largely untouched. So I say it's about walking your talk in the eight areas of the employee experience in a way that generates the reward function of the brain. So when you say the three, people might be going, but she asked for three, Heather, and you're talking about eight. <laughs> so one is walking the talk. Two, in the eight areas of the employee experience, three, in a way that triggers the reward function of our brain. Companies that do that have higher engagement. So how do you measure engagement? You're saying like it went up, it went down, and I'm wondering how do you do that? Yeah, I mean, largely through employee surveys and ad hoc. I mean, the annual employee survey, I would like most companies to do away with that. I would rather that you know, they sort of do sampling drip surveys all year long. Um, and it will better serve the employees, but it will also better serve the companies. Because I've worked in companies that do that annual survey. And so then all of a sudden, it's like a month before the survey, all the managers are trying to do and say the right thing because they know the survey is coming up. And then the yeah. survey happens and the employees go, no one really listens or does anything from this anyways, but I don't want to be that person. I literally had a boss once. This is awful. I had a boss who did not get as high of an employee engagement result as they wanted. And then they made all of us sit through like eight sessions going question by question to discuss who answered something and why they answered <laughs> it that way. And I said, if you want to kill your engagement, you're doing that. I mean, it was the most awful wow. experience. But that's investigation. It sounds like an investigation. It, it really was, right? And had that employee survey been an ongoing continuous sampling group, then that leader would have seen a dramatic dip in their engagement by approaching it in that way. But that's the problem with annual annual employee engagement surveys. Yeah. 
So before we we're, we have like lots of things that we didn't cover, but I want to talk about mindset and why you think it's so important and, and how you see it in general. You know, it's like a buzzword and everybody would say something different. So how do you see mindset as part of what you're doing? You know, it's interesting. There is, um, I think about mindset of leadership, which I've already pointed to the brain science of what part of the brain are people functioning in? And you pointed to this earlier that the last two years have been really hard. Yeah. And I th there's a lot of unprocessed grief, a lot of unprocessed trauma. Um, and I think we have a lot of, lot of people who are right on the precipice of that fear response. And so any small thing can trigger us into fight, flight, or freeze until we can work through um, what we have all been through these past years and what we're continuing to go through. And there's things that we've all shared in this pandemic, but then there's also been very individual uh, experiences and losses. And, you know, I think about like families who weren't able to gather for weddings or funerals, you know, that, that has an impact on us. So I think of mindset in that broad way of you know, as a collective consciousness, we have things that we need to process and we need to be take care of one another and ourselves. So that's my macro mindset. And then as a leader, it's recognizing that that is our experience and our employees, that all of us are part of that humanity. And then as an entrepreneur, because I, I started my consulting business right as the pandemic hit. Um, mindset has been critical for me in terms of being able to run my business in a way that I didn't expect. And so when I think about that, it's answering on all those levels. Um, that gets pretty complicated. But what I do know is I know when I take care of myself and I do mindset work, and for me, that can be journaling, that can be meditation, um, that can just be spending five minutes reading some inspiring quotes that speak to me. But when I spend just the smallest amount of time in that, I show up as a better version of myself throughout the whole day. And if something happens in the day, I can feel it's thrown me off. And pausing and taking five minutes to set myself straight in a sense, get recentered and grounded in who I am and what I'm doing and why I'm doing it, again, it allows me to show up in my best possible way. So I have both a personal relationship to mindset, but also on a macro lens, I think it's just accepting we've got a lot of shared humanity right now. We always have, but it's on display. It's right on the surface. And I think it's just a call for all of us to take a little bit, be a little more gentle with ourselves and a lot more gentle with each other. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And it seems like the, the anxiety level that people got from these two years and influenced their mental health and the way they're, they're thinking. And I think that right now we're seeing it even more. It's like a, an after effect right now that, that we're seeing. And, and I think that people understand their own emotions better and others emotions better and they this is like they're calling you know to just listen to it because maybe before you could have just overworked or done so, so many other things and you didn't listen to it and now it's like hard not to hear it i guess and so 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 important and it's like an insight that people got 
not in theory, but in their own experience of life. Yeah. And I totally agree with you that, that that's important. So we're almost done and I have only one last question. So what's your number one tip for leaders today? Uh, my number one tip for leaders is I, I would leave them with understanding that they're leading human beings with brains and as such um, have a lot of capacity for, uh, for their humanity. But secondly, learn to understand how the brain functions. That'll make you much more powerful as a leader in helping move your people away from the fight, flight, or freeze and get them into the reward function of the zone where they get to show up as their best. And then they appreciate you as the kind of leader that helps them operate in that space. Those are the kinds of leaders they want to stay with. Those are the kinds of leaders they want to work for. And if they have a question about that, they can reach out to me and I'd be happy to, uh, to help them with that. Sure. So tell me how can people reach out and hear more about what you're doing? Yeah. Well, you can definitely connect with me on LinkedIn, um, Heather Palifka, and they can see the spelling on the screen. It's, um, there's not many of us, so you know, it's yeah. easy to find. Uh, they can also reach out to me via awesomepeopleleaders.com uh, for our, our manager development program or Heather P. Solutions. And on every single one of our websites, there's a way that you can set up time with me, and I would love that. Sure. So thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Heather, and, and it, lots of insights from our talk. So. Thanks for that. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Sure. And, and to all of you change makers out there, thank you for joining us. And if you want to learn more, you're so invited to invincibleinnovation.com. And I'll see you next week with another innovative, insightful talk. See ya. I'm Adima Zaukario, and you've been listening to the Invincible Innovation Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, invincibleinnovation.com, where you can learn more about our programs and my book, Innovating Through Chaos. I'll be waiting for you next week in our next episode. Thank you for listening.